So beginning again, the past, yesterday, this morning is a memory, it's past, has left an impression, the future is unknown, it's the territory of speculation, hope, anxiety, the present is the knowing, where we align with this refuge of knowing, being present to here and now. The the present being here and now, establishing mindfulness as that which mindfulness is called, that which breaks the flood, the flood stopper. It helps reverse the stream of the outflow of the mind running into the future through the activity of speculation, anxiety, planning, ambition, or the mind that's stuck in patternings, painful places, ruminating over the past, what's happened. Usually an untrained mind has only really the option to sort of skid along the pathways, (laughs) through the pathways, the many, many mazes of the, the karma, it's this word karma, of what has been created from the past and has enormous momentum in shaping us as we move into the so-called future, shapes the future. And when it's unconscious, when what has been created, the karmas, the complexity of what is created from the billion intentions, our own personal intentions, the intentions of those that have influenced our experience, which is so profoundly complex, (laughs) going right back into ancestral genetic history. And all of that has a part to play in the effects of how we experience what's called the vipaka, the results of karma, the the many intentions that flood from the past and push us when we're not conscious, when there's no interruption in that flow, shape inexorably the patternings for the future. We're compelled almost to, to live the patterning of what's already gone before if there is no something that breaks that tendency, something that begins to reflect and choose a different pathway. And that's really the activity of mindfulness. The more mindful, the more capacity for wise reflection, the more capacity for clear conscious choice that moves out of those past patternings, changes the flow of karmic activity and enables a more wise and compassionate response. Hence the sensuality of mindfulness in the practice of meditation. And it is a meditative practice ultimately. The cognitive frameworks that we might understand mindfulness through, many techniques that are adjunct to the practice of mindfulness, 
But at its core or at its heart, it's a contemplative practice. It's a transformational practice. So this morning I'd like to reflect a little bit about that as we continue in our retreat, continuing today to cultivate this really important central aspect of the path, activity. Central heart aspect of the the meditative process, the contemplative process. Moments of mindfulness, moments of of stopping the flood. Or at least trying to contain the flood so we can actually contemplate what's part of the, the flood of what's gone before that pushes us onwards. In the calming meditation, the centering, the focusing, it gives us, begins to allow the, that momentum to slow a bit. Usually it's so quick, we just are reacting, responding, without often due reflection. And so when Kitisaro said yesterday in his, one of his talks that our experience, when we come into a retreat and we abdicate from that momentum for a few days, we disengage, unhook, then we sit here, and then a lot of what we feel, he, he gave the phrase eyeball to eyeball with our karma. In a way, it's more eyeball to eyeball with the resultant effect, what's called the ripaka, the, the result of what's gone before, the many creations uh, that have shaped the sense of self, have shaped the sense of who we are, and our place in the world. You know, that's what we, we come, we, we are confronted by. And some of that, you know, you generally, in a very broad categories, the uh, Buddha talked about two main streams of karmic activity, that which is called kusala, which means wholesome, and that which is akusala, meaning unwholesome. And and that, in some ways, that could contain a slight, to try and take it out of the context of some judgment value, but to really just get a sense of wholesome, unwholesome, that which is whole, healing, uplifting, nourishing, promoting well-being, promoting the capacity for clarity, for kindness, for, for... insight that allows a letting go or letting be, for insight that allows response, appropriate picking up. You know, this, this is what we might call a whole, wholesome karmic results that can appear in our life. There's a lot of wholesome karmic results that in, in all of us here that brings us into this activity. It's a result of what's gone before that's wholesome, an interest to inquire, an interest to cultivate, a deepening of, of qualities in our life that bring about insight, freedom. You know, to live more skillfully, this is, it's, it's actually a, it's kind of pretty rare in some ways. Not, not everyone is that interested in, in doing it in this kind of a sustained and focused way. So 
there's a, there's a sort of resultant, the fact that we're appearing in this context, giving time, energy, dedication to this activity, indicates already the accumulation of, of this wholesome karmic activity, intention. The base of karmic activity is the, the deeper intentions, the most potent aspect of what brings about results, wholesome or otherwise, in our life is the quality of intention of the mind that we bring to the creations that we, that we put in motion out in energetically through time and space. It's the intentionality. So the intentions that we've accumulated to bring us into this practice are wholesome, And then there's that which is less whole, more difficult to be with, more difficult to digest, uh, more painful, discordant, unhealed, unintegrated, uh, that's been set in motion, not always by our intention, this is where the complexity, when the Buddha talked about trying to fathom the causality of the origins of karma, basically it's an impossible task. It's so, it's so, and the, the, one of the um, corresponding Sanskrit word for karma, karoti or kara, the root kara, has this, has this sense of it's not only to do, but it has this sense of something being woven or plaited together. It has this sense of creations that are woven. It's almost like we're part of a woven blanket that has so many threads of intention, attentionality from so many different sources, parents, grandparents, ancestors, cultures, uh, that, that by the time you know, we manifest into our personhood, where we experience ourselves as being a combination of this woven together with many, many different, uh, even before we say our first word, <laughs> when we come into birth, it's already we're woven into a blanket of karmic inheritance. And then uh, it, within that stream, we add our own intentionality, our own particularity, you know, from various impulses, uh, our own particular karmic thread, if you like, what we perhaps bring, who knows from where, you know, genetically, karmically, from whether from past lives, whether we subscribe to that view or not, it's ultimately a view, who, who ultimately knows for sure. But we can say that we have our own particularities. So within that complex mix, it's hard to sometimes thread out what is mine, what is yours exactly, where does this all come from? But what we know is that there's a kind of momentum of impulse, of, of uh, you know, a flow, a flood, upon which we feel an impulse and then we find ourselves reacting and then moving out and continuing some form of create, creation that then has a momentum for, for ourselves to feel the results of, for others to feel the results of. All of this uh, the Buddha talked about is felt within the sphere. Yes, last night Kitty Syro 
talked about the impermanence, the changeability. So when we talk about how it's felt, how the result of karma is felt, it's not like we have a solid thing that we can say it's like this, like a package we can pick up. It's, it's dynamic, it's flowing, it's fluid. But it's felt as that which is changeable, is, is moving, is oscillating, but it's felt within the context of what the Buddha called the five skandhas in Sanskrit, or khanda. In Pali, we chanted this morning in the chanting, we went through, we recited the five khandas, which is a, a, another basic template of the teaching. Basically, the five khandas are all that we experience ourselves to be, all the, the resultant karmic activity from the past results and fruits in this present moment experience, which we can designate for, you know, just for the sake of language, as falling within one of these five khandas. It's a loose way of speaking about or, or how, how the world is, how we can designate it's like this. And then we can contemplate the experience of the five khandas. The first one being form. Literally, in this case, the, the bodily formation. The second one being feeling or sensation, very powerful. You know, when we say it's just pleasant or unpleasant sensation, it can sound sort of almost technically, clinically simple. <laughs> it's just unpleasant or pleasant sensation. The feeling tone is huge. So much karma gets created out of very powerful, sometimes very unconscious feel, uh, level of, of feeling painful feeling, so much karma that we create out of the existential sense of, of pain that we, that we experience, longing, un, un, unmet longing, unmet needs, profound sense of, of, of suffering that's not necessarily even conscious to us, that manifests maybe anxiety or worry or fears when we start to slow down, as, as we've been doing, and unwrap the layers a little, we sometimes come across these really deep places of just painful feeling that motivate so much of our activity and are often unconscious to us. Or, or the, the movement into the karmic creation of seeking pleasant feeling very strong. We have a billion-dollar industry of entertainment, that much of which is to evoke some kind of feeling. Uh, some kind of sense of completion through feeling good, or even if we are uh, stimulated to feel fear, or whatever we feel, there's a sense of, well, at least I'm feeling something. <laughs> it's very powerful, very powerful motivating uh, force for karmic activity. This the second khanda, Vedana, to feel the sensation. The third one, perception, cognition, connected with thinking, connected with um, just how we, how things become familiar to us. Sanya or perception is the sense of familiarity. I, I, 
I know something because I have a cognitive framework for it, I have a perception for it. And then what becomes familiar gradually becomes what we are. When we walk, when we first come to IMS, when we're new, it's not ours, it's just we're in this building, we orientate ourselves, and then very quickly the way that sense of familiarity, ownership starts to happen, it becomes my cup, <laughs> my seat. <laughs> it happens very quickly. What, why is that your seat suddenly? <laughs> well, you, you know, you're not attached until someone sits on it. So what creates that sense of the ownership in part is constructed by how we perceive the sense of that's my space, my property. It's an unchallenged way that the, this kanda works, the perceptual framework, how we frame another, my husband, my wife, my family. This, the fourth kanda, sankara, which literally means um, where well, it's translated, it literally means put together. It's the, 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 the sense of the structures of self that are put together, the, the, that we experience as, it's translated as often as karmic formation, structure with the way we think. In a way, it encompasses all of the, the khandas, the thinking, the movement out into... Um, the sense of this is m- me, this shape, this feeling tone, this thought pattern, the sense of how the pat- another word for sankara is patterning, the patterning of the self, the programming, which is perhaps a, a modern idiom which is useful. You could say the jita or the heart in its natural state is like a, Perhaps it's like a crashed computer that you sort of press the button and the blank screen comes up. There's something there, there's a brightness, but nothing's happening. And then these programs start, you know, like in the Matrix when the programs start to download. You know, that's Sankara, that's the programming that comes in, you know. And then we find ourselves like living, living in one of those programs. Yeah. Um, Meditation, we get to sometimes get a sense of the backdrop. <laughs> but most of the time, we're struggling in one of those programs. We're shaped very powerfully, the sense of self, the sense of me, very activated. And all of this is supported by the fifth khanda, which is called vinyana, moments of consciousness, moments of knowing at the sensory door that can, c- continues to construct the sense of self, moments of hearing, thinking, feeling, tasting, touching, the sensory experience, which includes the, the sense of thinking. So this sensory consciousness that gives the, 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 the feeling of something solid, something continuous, something that is lacking in any inherent instability, the sense of self feels so solid. Not always, actually, but generally speaking, we focalize around this sense of the, the me, as something that has an entity-ness to it, you know, that's constructed actually moment by moment by moments of thinking, particularly thought, very powerful, part of the programming, feeling tone, memory, the, the sanya, the perception, 
which is connected with me- memory familiarity. This feels like me because it feels so familiar. You know, this pattern is very much me. Uh, slightly wobbly, unsecure, kind of me that wobbles through life. <laughs> Get some of it right, some of it wrong. I don't know quite what I'm doing, but it feels familiar. You know, it's not that comfortable, but we wobble along. Or, you know, maybe we've got a very confident self going, you know, that's, uh, but it has to kind of feel like it's in control a lot because <laughs> actually it's pretty fragile. But if we can just, you know, keep it all together, um, you know, it's uh, in sort of ways of, and I, you know, I'm not, in a way, having a self structure that can get out there and do stuff is, 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 is not a bad thing. I'm not wanting to put that down. You know, we, we, in a way, it's a vehicle, like the body's a vehicle, and we want to, you know, it's, if we're going to put something together, let's put something together that's as wholesome, as functional as possible. But it's not, you know, but while we're tied to any aspect of the five khandhas and identified as an ultimate resting place, then we're always going to be subject to this experience of what the Buddha called dukkha, fragility, stress. Because the very nature of the khandhas, they shape, they form, they come together, they pattern, help us pattern the sense of self. They're influenced and shaped by the flood of karmic activity that's gone before. It's very complex, very, you know, just very deep tendencies that come up and shape around these khandhas, give a sense of self. Then, you know, from that, the creations happen as get projected into a sense of future by these mind moments that are really, you know, and as we're in those patternings, you know, however skillful they are, and we should attempt to cultivate skillful patterning, we can't really avoid it, the Buddha did. He worked in the world to, with the forms of the world to the best of the, the capacity he could in the context he was in. But however, he, he didn't point to making the perfect self-structure, the perfect structure in the world as the way of liberation. We get it as good as we can, but the liberating principle, which is the activity of wisdom and insight, is to know the limitation. And we know that through the experience of dukkha. That however perfect it is, there's still this fear underneath of the, because of the insubstantiality, because of the, it's changing, because we can't ultimately control the flow of the khandhas. It's insubstantial, it's changing, it's dynamic, it's fluid. And as, as long as we're attached, our identities involved, deeply involved in, the, in an aspect of the five khandhas, then we'll feel we'll be prone, we'll be destined to experience dukkha, struggle, stress, suffering. So it's, you know, it's just good to know what we're involved in. <laughs> it's a pretty thick stew. <laughs> you know, and then we come and sit and then we want to be peaceful and we wonder why, uh, you know, it's just to recognize that it's difficult to sit and meet the power of what's been put into motion and not be able to distract ourselves very much. I think before <clears throat> I entered monastic life, like many of us, monastic training, I had two strategies, basically. Um, 
one when meeting this experience of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the, the sense of struggle or stress, not really having a way to reflect on it, I either had the, the you know, in psychological terms, the fight or flight. I was the flight person. <laughs> That's why a lot of flight po- people get into meditation because it's like, where's the way up and out, you know? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, that was my primary strategies. And, you know, the flight wasn't always easy, so very complex and skillful ways of disassociating and not really being here fully embodied in life, living partially. You know, for others it's easier to get in there and to take on the world and struggle. But when in the monastic training it's designed, in a a smaller way, this is what a retreat is is designed to bring us to the point where in some ways we can't do either. We come up against those strategies and some people have named that in the interviews or are experiencing that, you know, if only you know, I could get back under the duvet, or you know, is there a good way that I could actually get out of this? Could could I arrange for someone to send me an emergency call? <laughs> you know, so I could just you know gracefully keep face, go to the managers and said, I've got an emergency at home. It's really really bad. My you know, I really you know, my fridge door won't close properly or something. You know, I've got to really get back there and sort it out. You know. Um, so, you know, in a way we get to the point where the, the strategies that we've learned so well to keep moving around, the fundamental thing that life just keeps throwing up, you know, the, 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 the message of dukkha. You know, when we get to a place where that doesn't work so well in, in Thai land, Ajahn Chah would say, it's a ripe moment, it's a good moment. In the West we would say, you know, there's a drag, there's something wrong, go, you know, go shopping. <laughs> go to the mall. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a ripening moment when, when those strategies, you know, don't, don't work. And for me, in my training, it came up within the, within, I'd been very idealistic. One do, does tend to often come into spiritual pathways, reasonably idealistic, from an idealistic place of light and rosy kind of pink clouds that I was going to sit on forever, floating in some nibbanic bliss. Boy, did I have a shock, you know. And when I first um, took ordination, I was living with uh, a few other sisters, four of us ordained together. We were first nuns to ordain in the UK in 1979. And we had come from very different backgrounds, and basically it wasn't easy for us to get on together, you know, which, which was hard to accept because we were all very spiritual. <laughs> and getting on together was a serious undertaking because we were living in a very small, this was in the, the first nun's cottage in the UK, it was tiny, you know, like here, and there's, you know, there's a lot of space, but it was actually really tiny. There wasn't a lot of space. There was no electricity. We had no electricity for five years. We had cold winters. We had one fire. And we had a very demanding schedule to keep, which would start at four in the morning and go through till nine, ten at night. And once a week, we would sit up every night. So it was sleep deprived. 
And there's nothing like those kind of regimes to start to plug into those deeper sankhara, those deeper patternings of survival mechanisms, which aren't pretty. We can think we're as nice as pie, but if we get to the point of who gets out the door first when the fire comes, then we know what really is going on. <laughs> and those very deeper levels of, you know, they're good to acknowledge. They're powerful, powerful. And, you know, when, when there's a, s- a certain sort of sleep deprivation and, you know, the training, um, the, 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 lack of, the, the lack of premise for your ego structure being whittled away, whittled away, whittled away, uh, we would, you know, you, you really come up against some very challenging inner reactions. And for me, it came to a crescendo over who was going to light. We had this little fire that would heat up at night, the hot water. And so, you know, at that time, the monastery was like a building site. It was, you know, we were, at, we were literally on a building site, building the thing. And so we'd be out there um, building roads. But, you know, we didn't really have, in those days, construction crews coming in because there wasn't the finances. So guess who was out there? <laughs> you know, just uh, cooking, building, you know, we were all doing it as a community. And at night you get home to the little cottage, tired, hoping for some hot shower and cold winter. And we'd have a rotor who would turn it was to light the fire. And my turn was in the morning, so I'd got this great fire going and I was looking forward to getting back in the evening and having you know, something of a warm shower. And the nun who was supposed to keep the fire going had forgotten. And I'd gotten back and the whole place was stone cold. And something just, you know, I just broke through to my, to the, to a level of rage that was just unbelievable. You know, it was just really, there was no, I couldn't spiritualize it. I couldn't pink cloud it. I couldn't sort of, you know, I couldn't flight. You know, I did sort of think that's it. I had a little bit too much pride after a year to say, I'm now disrobing. <laughs> and I couldn't murder anyone, <laughs> which was the other tendency, which was so shocking for me to, to have to be confronted with, a very primitive level of uh, fear and anger. And it was at that point that I really understood when Ajahn Chah would say, when you're in the corner and you can't move up, down, below, any strategy of the sankaric shaping won't work. He said, that's when you really know, begin to know what practice is. It's at that moment that, you know, there's no other place to move. And it's at that place that I really began to unfold into this central aspect of the training of this place, place of mindfulness, the, the middle way between flight and fight, the middle way of, of replacing the reactivity the primitive or even sophisticated reactivity to the flow of karma that keeps the whole thing going, replacing that with a moment of attention. You know, I just saw the skill of the Buddha's teaching to bring that attention to here, to now, to the activation of the khandhas, the feeling tone, boy, you know, at that moment, heat, or the shape of the body, just constricted or the, the mental formations just going wild, you know, uh, with the storylines, feeling abandoned, feeling not taken care of, feeling hopeless, feeling it's not fair, you know, all the activation of those deep patternings. 
the you know the uh, sensory experience being very heightened. So it was a, it wasn't a you know I wouldn't like to push people to that point. I don't necessarily know if it's that skillful psychologically. <laughs> um, I don't think you know it's just I'm just I'm just using that example to highlight the principle of this flood stopper. This 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 application of the mindfulness of the the Buddha talked about mindfulness as as that which which has inherent with it the adjunct phrase that you often find in the training of mindfulness in Pali is is Yonisa Manisakara which has a, a very beautiful meaning so if I can just unpackage that a little bit so that we can work with this today it's Yonisa Manisakara which yoniso means yoni has literally means womb actually yoni means sometimes in the older translations it's translated as primary matrix or or something original that some womb some sort of sense of a space or a holding space mani manis is an aspect of mind consciousness it's the aspect of mind that moves out names and uh, designates the world as such, designates the self. Uh, it's the principle of, of mind that's part, very much involved in part of sustaining the creations of karma. And Yonisamani uh, Sikara, kara is connected again with the word karoti, kara, karma, creation. So it literally has this connotation of taking the creations, the flow of karma, the flow of these patternings, the flow of these skandhas, taking them back into the womb of awareness, bringing them back into this sphere of mindfulness so they can be contemplated, you know, so they can be seen for what they are, so they can be known and in the context of the training from last night's talk, we can begin to see that what seems so solid, so fixed, so undeniably flooding us and pushing us on, in actuality is just moments, moments of feeling tone, moments of perception, moments of thinking consciousness, moments of assumption, it's like this, it's always going to be like this, this person's always going to be like this, (laughs) I'm always going to and then we just see it's, that's a thought form. It only has as much reality as we invest, actually. So the vipassana, the seeing into the nature of the khandhas, is little by little slowing, calming, holding within this womb of mindfulness. Knowing in this moment, it's just this much. It's just a perception. It's just thought. It, just saying it's just this much doesn't strip it of meaning and complexity and fullness, but it's a way of getting a perspective. It's a way of beginning to feel some dispassion. It's called viraga, some sense of an alternative relationship, replacing reactivity with this responding from mindfulness, being with from a place of mindfulness. And as we do that, more and more, the Buddha said it's like 
you know, it's like if you, you made an analogy of the Khandas to the Ganges. He said, it's like if you, if you see the Ganges, you go, that's, you have a name, that's the Ganges River. And for any of you that have been to the Ganges, it's a, it's a phenomena that's very, very powerful. You know, it's definitely something we can see. You can track the source of the Ganges as it, you know, it flows out down from the Himalaya, comes down through Rishikesh and down Hardwar, down through the Ganges Basin, and eventually comes out Calcutta, Varanasi, this huge, nearly mile-long river as it gets nearer to the ocean. And we can say, if I say the Ganges, you can say, yeah, I know, the Ganges. And then the Buddha said, if you went up to the Ganges and picked up some water and tried to grasp the Ganges, you couldn't hold it. It would just be like, it would just flow through. So what is the Ganges? And in the same way, when we talk about the self or another, it's, if you actually, it seems so solid, it seems so real, Tanisara, God, you know, she's so, tell me about her, you know, she's so real, you know, and so all this history, all these, you know, ambitions and plans and perceptions and around myself, around someone else that I'm holding in my mind in a certain way. And yet if we start to look at moments of the momentary experience and go up and say, where can you pick up? And hold it's the, the these 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 khandas. Each of these khandas, the Buddha made the analogy. They're bubble-like, like the bubbles on the Ganges. They're foam-like. They're transparent. Innately, they they have within them, as Kitty Sorrow is saying. At first, they seem heavy. They seem constricted. They appear as pain. They appear as overwhelming, but as we start with mindfulness, with attention, to see more and more the nature of a moment of feeling, the nature of the moment of thought, the nature of the moment of sensation, we'll see that it has this sense of ephemerality. You can't actually grasp it. And in that letting, therefore, letting things, letting these karmic creations just move through and find their own way back. To wherever they came from, I don't know. (laughs) Moving back, moving, letting things flow, letting this, without the identification, without the hooking into in moments of just seeing that flow of change, change, you begin to notice through the transparency is this innate luminosity of heart, the heart that's luminous in the midst of the complexity of the weave of karma, the heart that's actually liberated, the awareness that's present in spite of whatever karmic flow is moving through, and the possibility as we meet the moments of that impact, that impression from what's gone before, the possibility that that which is unhealed, unwhole, painful, distorted, 
without trying to think about how to fix it, the possibility in the moment of meeting with this moment of mindfulness presence that that can find its own release, its own healing, its own nature, its own brightness. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is certain. But with the alignment with mindfulness, with presence, with the alignment with a deeper refuge, then we have the capacity to, to be with how things are, to transform what is painful, to let go of what is not needed, and to establish ourselves in that uh, in a way that is the most skillful out of compassion for, for ourselves and, and for our families and for all beings. So today in our practice, I encourage, really encourage this exploration of present moment attentiveness to how it is and trusting that as a power rather than thinking so much about how to fix everything. Trusting that mindfulness, when developed and strengthened, is that which in the text, in the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the training of mindfulness calls mindfulness the ekkayana marko, the path literally back to the one. Sometimes it's translated as the one way, but it literally means the path to oneness, path back to the heart, the path that frees us from reactivity and unconscious creation of karma and its results. Path of freedom. <laughs>